0: There are times in life, right, when the reality, I think, of who we are is truly more obvious than at other times. Uh, For example, maybe think of the first time you learned how to drive, you went through your driver's training, you took the test, you were in the test, but you had the evaluator right there with you, um, and now you're a licensed driver. That's who you are. But then there was the first time you got into your car by yourself and you had to merge onto a busy freeway and it hit you all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I am a licensed driver. Like The reality of who you are just sometimes smacks you upside the head in different ways. And one of the memories of reality sneaking up on me was when I first became a dad. Uh, we were in the hospital. Corey gave birth to uh, to a baby and we called her Sophia. Okay, I've read about this. Everyone tells me your life's going to change forever. Uh, I'm technically a father of this newborn. but. There's nurses doing everything they're running around changing diapers and then we get home and there's grandparents and aunts and uncles and Okay, I'm a new dad. I guess but on that third day after being home the parents leave the aunts and uncles leave and we are home alone with this thing that poops and cries and Cory and I are just petrified sitting on our bed and we prayed one of the most heartfelt prayers we've ever prayed Oh God, what do we do? now The issue was not whether or not I wanted to be a dad. The issue was not whether or not I should be a dad or how I was going to be a dad. The fact of the matter was I was a dad and I had to live into that reality or else sink. Now this evening we're going to be returning to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount Matthew 5 after focusing uh, on Easter and the road to Easter over the past two weeks. And one of the things we've been learning uh, in our series on on the Sermon on the Mount is that in chapter 4 Jesus began his teaching and was announcing a new reality that has come into the world. He was announcing that the actual kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven was at hand. And he was declaring this new reality with his words but He was also inviting people to come into this new reality and experience and live into it. Now, the popular thought in Jesus' day was that when God's kingdom would come, it would A, be a kingdom of power that would elevate Israel to prominence. And B, popular thought, was that if you were going to be part of this kingdom, you needed to be prosperous and healthy and be an extremely moral person. Otherwise, you didn't have any chance of getting in. So here's this crowd of people, and they're gathered around Jesus. And while he doesn't seem to be a military guy, and he doesn't necessarily seem like he's friends with the religious leaders, he's doing all kinds of God things. He's healing people, and he's casting out demons, and he's including outsiders. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to teach people about the new reality. And he begins the story like this. Matthew tells it. He says, When Jesus saw this crowds gathered around him, He went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So now imagine this. He's, he's got his disciples right around him. He's going to say these things to his disciples within earshot of the crowds, right? And he says to them, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of the living God. And blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the very same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you you are the salt of the earth but if the salt has become tasteless it's really not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by people you are the light of the world A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as I read what you said to your first disciples, and I guess to us as your future disciples. I'm blown away by the things you say about us. I think you think a lot higher of us than we think about ourselves. You imagine us living a life that we so so often miss. Lord, as we live in your scripture this evening and this message of salt and light. Would you do more, Lord, than uh, open our minds, but would you open our hearts to receive what it is you want to do in us, Lord? I pray that you would change not only how we think, but how we live, how we feel, how we interact with you, and how we interact with each other, and how we interact with those who don't know you yet. All to your glory. Amen. So there's all kinds of people gathered around Jesus. His disciples were there who had already chosen, as best they could understand at this early stage in the game, they had already chosen to give their lives up for Jesus. You remember, they left their families, they left their professions, and they're following this vagabond, basically, around being his students. And then maybe perhaps behind them you have all of these crowds of people. And Jesus is teaching that the reality of the kingdom was such that... The poor in spirit would inherit this kingdom, not those who think they're righteous and strong in their own strength. While the world is uncomfortable with those who are mourning and the world looks down on the meek, Jesus declared that they would be comforted and would inherit the new creation. Jesus gives these statements of reality. Sometimes we call them beatitudes. And we have seen over the past few months that these beatitudes are statements of God's grace. 1st their grace because no one expected the poor in spirit to inherit anything, let alone the kingdom of heaven. Second, because as we surrender to Jesus and trust in Him, He actually develops these qualities in us. He develops a recognition that we need Jesus, right? He develops a humility. He develops a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that is gospel... Because who's the main mover in that? It's Jesus doing it in you and I, not us striving to have to do something that's impossible. The Beatitudes are not telling us what we have to do as if we could do it in our own strength. Rather, the Beatitudes are telling us that what Jesus promises to do in us when we trust him. Come on now, amen? That's, that's great news. That is great news. So tonight we're going to focus on what comes after these Beatitudes, Matthew five thirteen through 16 and what it means that Jesus calls his disciples salt and light. And by the way, if you have decided to make Jesus your Lord, you've decided to follow him, you are a disciple, right? So you are salt and light. Well, we first need to discover what salt and light may have meant to Jesus and his his audience. And one of the first things that we know that stands out to me is that Israel was often called to be salt and light. God's chosen people from the beginning of the story of Abraham. You are going to be blessed to be a blessing to the entire world. I am going to so bless your socks off, Abraham, who would then become the father of this nation Israel, that people are going to be attracted to you. People are going to be drawn to you, and when they are drawn to you, Israel, I want you to reflect me. I want you to tell them that it's all because of me. And then the world, not just one people, the world will come to worship Yahweh, the living God. More specifically, we can look at salt and light on their own terms. Uh, the historian Pliny, the elder, wrote that the two most useful things on earth are salt and sunlight. Salt was associated with wisdom, purity, covenant loyalty. It was an element that was often added to sacrifices. It was a spice to flavor food, especially, especially if you uh, lived in England, which was after this time. But uh, A preservative that prevented meat from decaying. Salt in the first century was extremely valuable. At times, Roman soldiers were paid in salt. And in fact, that's where you, from the Latin you get the word salary. Meat treated properly with salt could last for months, and certain meats could last for years. In many places in the world today, without refrigeration like we're used to, people still use salt to preserve things. Okay? So in terms of Jesus calling you and I salt we may see that he's calling us extremely valuable we're to be set apart in a way that prevents the world from decay while also adding a little bit of spice to the world in the same way light is a metaphor it's used for truth light is used in scripture for god's presence for israel being a light to the nations and maybe the most powerful association with light in scripture is Jesus' statement in john chapter eight verse twelve Where he says, I am the light of the world. In that one statement, Jesus is making a claim not only to his divinity, but also offering the world salvation. In John chapter 1, we read, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man, woman, and child. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. But the world didn't know him. He came to his own. But his own did not receive him. Check this out. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To as many as received Jesus the light, he gave the right not to be called children of God, but to become children of God. That's powerful. That's powerful. Salt and light. Serious business. All of a sudden, Pliny the Elder's thing about salt and sunlight being the most valuable things or most important things on earth seems a little bit uh, of an understatement, right? In this context, salt and light are signs of salvation and shalom and God's presence and His goodness. And He says to His followers, You are the salt of the, the earth. You are the light of the world. Two quick things to point out there. First of all, this statement... You are the salt, you are the light, is in the plural. The you is the you all, right? If we were in the south, it would be y'all, or the salt of the earth, right? That's a horrible accent. (laughs) So it's not so much, you know, you, Emily, are the salt of the earth, or you, Frank, are the light of the world, but it's more like you, Letter Street's Covenant Church, are salt and light. You, churches in Bellingham, that call on Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are salt and light. You, church, spread out throughout the world, are salt and light. It's a joint venture. Second thing I want to point out is that it says you are salt. You are light. Not you should try and be salt and light, or it's not you should figure out how you can strive to be salt and light. But if you follow Jesus, you are salt and And you are light. And that's good news because, and this is a small nuance, but in Greek thought, the teacher would state an ideal. You are, here's the ideal person. Now, students, you strive to be like that through discipline and denial. And you do it in your own strength. The gospel is different. The gospel says, church, you are salt and light. Live into what you really are. Live into that reality. It seems like a small nuance, but it is entirely a different thing. One is good news, declaring who you really are. The other is kind of impossible news. Strive to be what you could probably never become on your own. As we surrender to Jesus and trust that he knows the way to live, that he knows the best way to live, right? Right? We're able to live in his power of his resurrection spirit and become what he says that we are. Invaluable. You really are salt and light. You really are a preservative and truth. You really are a bearer of peace, of shalom in the world. In John's gospel, Jesus gives us an agricultural example. He says, I'm the true vine and you are the branches. So all you need to do is remain in me and you're going to bear much fruit right he doesn 't say you need to go to seminary and learn a lot of things, and then you can bear fruit he doesn 't say you need to do all of this stuff, and then you 'll bear fruit. He says "Remain in me, and your relationship with me will cause you to bear fruit because Jesus is the source he is the vine. The same idea is at work here as we submit to Jesus and stay connected to him. He makes us salty and he makes us i don 't know lighty uh, full of light he, he He does that in us. If Jesus is the true light, then we reflect Him. Just as the moon has no inherent light of its own, it still lights up the night sky because it reflects the sun. And so for us, as we remain in Jesus, we reflect His goodness throughout the world. So one thing we can do to reflect that is to make space... To be with Jesus in our lives. It's part of what makes us different or set apart. We believe that prayer actually changes us. Or actually, more correctly, the one to whom we pray changes us, right? And that silence and solitude with Jesus allows Him to shape us and to change us. We believe that the discipline of worship through song and scripture and sacrament actually changes us. That the fact that Right now we're declaring God's Word, whether or not I get it all right, or how compelling I am as a preacher, something is happening. Because we're proclaiming the truth of God's Word. I, I stand on that truth, because I, I, I know I'm not the best preacher. So I'm so glad that that's true. All right. So we believe these things. We believe that meeting Jesus in Bible study is not just informational, but it's transformational. That being in community with other believers... Encourages us and sharpens us that sacrificing time and being generous with finances actually changes us. These are necessities we would do well to grow in these areas, but there is a danger. Jesus says that if salt has become tasteless it 's no longer really good for anything. He says that light is not meant to be covered up. if you put it under a basket, it can 't really light anything up. It probably start a fire. Salt is worthless if it doesn't mix with things. One person I was reading this week said, you know, you can have a ton of salt a centimeter away from your dinner, but it won't make a darn difference unless it mixes in with dinner, right? Well, during Jesus' day, there were some religious communities who believed that they were salt and light. In fact, one of them was called the Qumran community, from which we get the Dead Sea Scrolls. They lived lives of discipline And purity, and their devotion is actually quite admirable. And they could probably take you in a Bible quiz, at least on the Old Testament, right? They spent much of their energy devoted to saltiness and to being light, but they failed to make any significant difference, except for we're really thankful for their Dead Sea Scrolls. The reason is because they never left their own community. They focused so much on getting things right and being salty and being full of light that they never really mixed with the world. And what Jesus is saying is, I am taking this responsibility of salt and light from these religious leaders and I am giving it to my disciples, Jews and Gentiles. I am making all who follow me now salt and light. We are made to live into this new reality. We're made to live a rhythm of of worship and study and remaining in Jesus on the one hand, and then living life with Jesus in the world on the other hand. We need both of these things. If I'm just an activist without being remaining in Jesus, I lose my center. I can't do anything of lasting value. But if I spend all my time with my church friends and doing Bible studies and singing songs, and that's great, I get... All this knowledge, and I get to be with Jesus all the time, it doesn't do the world any good. It's not part of God's mission for us just to hang out together in monasteries all the time. That's why the Dead Sea is dead. Because it's got all of the salt, but there's no outlet from the Dead Sea. Nothing can grow there except weird bacteria and stuff, but... I don't know what they're called, but Charlotte might. But in, anyway, I mean, no fish can grow there. And you can't really drink the water. It's so salty. There's no outlet. In fact, I, I would I just say that I don't think we can be fully human if we're not living into the reality that we're salt and light. I think that is one of the major sources of frustration and discontent in many Christian hearts. We so often compromise with the world that we don't look or live any differently. And if we don't engage in meaningful outlets for our faith, we really become the walking dead. We come to church and we hear sermons and we get convicted about what we ought to be doing or how we ought to be living. And then we get numb and desensitized because we just walk around and are walking compromises all the time. If you've sensed that frustration, a lot of that's because we don't have meaningful outlets or we don't take advantage of engaging in meaningful outlets. You and I are the salt of the earth. You and I are the light of the world. That's a fact. I don't need to really explain that too much. But I would like to talk about maybe some ways that that could look. First... I think it plays out in caring for one another. When Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, he first went to his own people, to the Jews. The gospel is for the world, but he first came to those who were his original flock. The apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, did the exact same thing. In every new city he went to, where did he go first? To the synagogue. And he taught from the Jewish scriptures first. And then he spread out to the Gentiles. In Acts, we see the first organizations of the church focused on Christians eating together, worshiping together, learning together, and caring for one another's physical and spiritual and emotional needs. The world should know we are with Jesus because of our love for one another. Many of my pre-Christian friends marvel at you. Uh, Just a few years ago, uh, I unexpectedly tore my ACL like you ever expect to tear it out yeah I think I'll go to that game where I know I'm going to tear it out so anyway I I was just finishing grad school didn't have any money and a certain uh, behind my back Christine and Ryan Wasserman coordinated this little fundraising thing where they called a bunch of friends and people in the church and you guys raised enough money to pay our medical bills and there's a lot of people in our lives who are just blown away that that anyone would do that let alone this church would do that now I know that there are lots and lots of caring people in the world but the church should lead the way in how we care for one another how we forgive one another it's not just about you know it's really easy to cut checks to one another but it is really hard to lead the way in forgiveness and unity how often are we as churches local congregations known for how we're not like those other guys right but we ought to be leading the way in reconciliation Second, we live into our identity as salt and light when we're engaged in caring for the world. It's part of our history as the church. In the early centuries of the church's existence, Christians were looked down upon and often persecuted by the Romans. There were these foolish people who believed in this weird one God, this God who got crucified and they say rose from the dead. How then did this little band of outsiders with no power become one of the most prominent movements in the world within a few centuries. It wasn't through power, it was through service, by being salt and light. In Rome, it was common practice to expose children in the wilderness. They would have designated spots where you would leave a baby if you didn't want it. Maybe it would have a birth defect, maybe it would be a girl, and you had too many girls and you wanted just boys in your family. Romans would think not wouldn't think twice about just putting these babies out there It was Christians that would go and take these babies They would hang out there and adopt them into their own families The whole idea The whole idea of human rights Didn't exist Didn't exist until the Jesus movement Came and said people inherently have value because they're made in God's image When plagues ravaged Rome from time to time, healthy people fled cities and the sick were were left there to die. It was Christians and Jews who remained behind and often met their own death by just being there and loving the suffering. Emperor Trajan once wrote that Christians put us to shame and Jews put us to shame for the care. They care for their own better than we do. In the fourth century, Bishop Athanasius of Alexandria, Egypt, stood against slavery. He rallied churches to give money so that those churches could buy slaves right off the ship, and then they would free those slaves. Throughout the years, the church has been salt and light by preserving the world from decay and by spicing it up, making things better than they have to be. There's lots of ways that we as human beings can survive. But God isn't about us surviving. He's about us thriving in his wonderful creation. By being salt and light, the church has given us democracy, human rights, universities, hospitals, entire movements of art and music, musical notation. Even the fact that you can read music is from the monasteries because these kids used to sing out a tune and the brothers would whip them and be like, why can't you guys get it right? We've got to figure out a way to standardize music. So anyway, that came out of the church too. <laughs> all, these, all these examples seem so, so large, right? They seem like if you're going to be salt and light, you have to start an, a new entire movement in history. They look like that when we look through the lens of the past. But don't be discouraged. Most of these movements, most of being salt and light, doesn't hap- happen by individuals doing spectacular things. It happens by a lot of people. Being faithful with little things. Think about that for a moment. It doesn't, being salt and light is not dependent on on you or I doing amazing, spectacular things on ourselves. Because if it did, it would exclude most of us who are not the brightest, who are not the wealthiest, right? Who are not those in positions with the most power. That would exclude most of us. Being salt and light starts with the small decisions we make every day to live into the reality that Jesus made us in his image. And then we act accordingly. In fact, that's why I asked Leslie, I asked you to read the parable of the mustard seed earlier on. Being the church, being salt and light, often means being faithful with the small stuff that God gives us. Being faithful with the little things. And those little seeds, that little piece of leaven, then God can use over time and transform entire communities. Last month we had a work day at Maritime Heritage Park. We showed God's care for creation and our neighbors. We preserved the park. We improved the grounds. That's being salt and light but jeff caldwell had a simple conversation with a man who seemed lonely turns out this guy was homeless looking for work in the fishing business um, no fireworks went off for jeff but jeff just felt called to go buy this guy groceries so simple thing he buys groceries he's faithful with a little bit and you know what we have no idea what's going to happen with that man i have no idea but we do know that that's what it looks like to be salt and light. One little thing. Jesus is responsible for the growth of those acts. On the Easter egg hunt last weekend, we were able to be a blessing to hundreds of our neighbors, hosting a fun community event. I had a few great conversations with people who were blown away by the quality of the event, by how much fun it was, by the generosity of of this group of people right here. And one lady asked me, "Why would you do this? Why would you spend the time and the the resources and and manpower and and money to do this?" She says, "Awesome!" I said, "Well, we really believe that God has called us to love this community, and we thought this would be a great way to help neighbors get to know each other and to just bless people in Jesus' name." I, I was able to say that she asked me, and she said, "Tell your church it's working." A stupid thing like an egg hunt. A little opportunity to spread some salt and light. Who knows the impact that Brianna Plug is having in Columbia, caring for students through teaching English and being an example. Or what impact Wayne and Jeannie and Frank could be having on bringing the word to people in jail. Or Justin and Jonathan at the drop-in center at the mission. Or Collins in Thailand. Or Keith at the elementary school or in your workplace, or in your home, or on your soccer team, or in your neighborhood meeting, or at the voting polls, or the art you create, or the hospitality you show. Salt, light, mustard seed, leaven, faithful in the small things. Trusting God for the growth. Whether you want to be or not, whether you think you are or not, if you follow Jesus... You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. The question is, will we live into that reality? It's the only way to be fully alive. And I believe it's what we were called to be. Would you pray with me?